0: Hello everyone, welcome to Two Crickets at a Thorn Tree with myself, Nicholas Lorimer and uh, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Yes, so as per usual we're going to be bringing our sort of eclectic mix of um, weird and wacky and wonderful things from around the world. Uh, so let me start off with a uh, wonderful piece of of news that proves to me that I was completely right about her. And that is that Marianne Williamson, a one-time American uh, presidential hopeful, Uh, Who is now dropped out of the race, has endorsed Andrew Yang for president. Mm, mm, mm. Firstly, I'm very pleased. Yeah, so
1: Marianne Williamson, her big line was that she is going to overwhelm the tide of hate with a wave of love. Yes. And And she was
0: going to heal the psychic wounds of America.
1: Yeah. That was the word she used, psychic wounds. Psychic wounds. And she seemed a little bit... uh, unserious when it comes to matters like the... Government's debt and uh, Not really anything foreign policy honest, she, she on wasn't Iran.
0: Big, she wasn't big on details.
1: no, but she was hugely popular because she had written a few books and got into Oprah Winfrey's book club mm. and, and they she, were she, sort of self-help, uh, power of positive thinking. but uh, she's
0: also she's also a, a, a religious figure. She's actually a very sort of new age religious figure. Um she ran a church out in California. And uh, it was very popular with some people in Hollywood. Yeah, celebrities. And and she sold a lot of books, like a lot of books. Now she, F- she 14 million. Yeah. She, now, she didn't have traction. She got nowhere in the primaries. I mean, she. I think the highest she ever polled was 2% two, two or something. But uh, the point is, though, that uh, she's an interesting figure because she sort of doesn't form like the normal elite, you know, because she's weird and wacky and very sort of new age religious hippie. Yeah. Um. But I, I am genuinely fond of her because I do think that a lot of America's problems at the moment are more uh, almost psychological than they are material. And considering half the other clowns running for president right now, she'd be better than most.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I do think I think that there's, uh, there's room in I'd politics do. for people to be really useful without... Directly shooting for power. No, definitely. And definitely. one of the, I, I think if anyone watched any House of Cards, uh, it's this TV show that is super popular for a while and I think has kind of faded into obscurity. Uh, the first couple of seasons were really about sort of two characters, a power couple with no children who are ruthlessly ambitious climbing their way into the White House. But mm, I think, like someone. yeah, by season three, they introduced this new layer of sort of puppet masters, of people who kind of run the show without wanting to be president or vice president or in cabinet. Uh, what's uh, the Cardinal
0: Richelieu from uh, what's it, uh, 17th century France, um, referred to as the grey eminence, behind mm. the power behind the throne, the sort of dark force controlling everything. Really.
1: Yeah, and I think anyone who watched Game of Thrones, which would be a few people because it's the most popular TV show of the <laughs> 21st century, would know like the older Lannister father who was never or who was like never king. He like, was never in the Iron yeah. Throne, but he ran the Seven Kingdoms. Oh, yeah.
0: or, or like maybe a Varys or Little Finger as well, having these great yeah. amounts of influence without.
1: So, and I think Marianne Williamson in that regard could play a positive role. Oh, possibly. Because the kind of influence that she has is let's not demonize people um let's as far as possible kind of uh think about think in a positive way mm-hmm. and and i th- i think she's a re- there's a nice to use a, a business term synergy between her and Andrew Yang because Andrew Yang they're both wacky outsiders but he's quite technocratic yes. he's like a business yes. guy and a lot of what's smart about his ideas are the number oriented you, you know what sort I, of find, what I thought
0: was so interesting right so when i first kind of Came, when he came to attention, I was like, "No, nah, nah, this guy's spending plans are way out of control. Like his his universal basic income thing, it's too expensive. Yeah, the Americans can't afford it." Uh, and then I heard what everyone else was planning, and yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, he's actually a, a moderate." <laughs> yeah, he really is. And one of the
1: things about basic income is that, in many ways, it's more liberal than a lot of the programs that are being exactly, put forward because, because it, it puts the choice. Yeah, where do you want to spend your money? Mm, mm. Uh, Food stamps are appealing because you kind of want people to mm. uh, be able to sp- like eat. And then if you're dishing out money, you might worry that they're going to spend the money on drugs. But you were telling me about this
0: town that runs on soda pop. Yeah, there's a town in um, in Appalachia, uh, which is the kind of very poor West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, that sort of area. It's the range of mountains over there. And it's historically basically always been the poorest part of America. Um and there are some it's got very high petty crime, but extremely low uh, violent crime, which is one of the interesting things about it, despite the fact that they're very poor areas. and one of these towns, the economy of the town basically runs off of cans of soda. The reason for that is that you can buy cans of soda with food stamps, which is what a lot of the population gets mm. to supplement their their income um, and then you take there's a company that that takes in the cans of soda for half the dollar value that you bought them from for mm. them then for. So effectively what happens is people buy cans of soda and then trade it in for half their value. So they buy like $100 of soda yeah, and, you and get then you sell it for $50 cash, and then that 50 bucks yeah. you can buy opium. So, or, so it's a way of converting the food stamp into cash yeah. that you can spend anyway.
1: And so it's inefficient. It's like, it's perverse. And it's, I think one yeah. of the one of the things sometimes mm. at the Institute we talk about as being sort of undervalued is mm. the uh social grant system that we have because it is paying mm. people out in cash and then they get to decide whether they're buying school shoes but or of course
0: of course it has some problems such as you know the fact that it's a pension or it's a Uh, it's a child grant or something which then creates weird distortions in behavior. So either you have a whole family leeching off of granny's pension or you have a woman who has an extra child or something. She doesn't really mind having another child because she knows that she's going to get money from it. Or there's a disability grant where the disabled member of the family is taken advantage of by everyone else who basically steals their money. So it's also a bit perverse. And in a way, if you could afford universal... Exactly. If we, In fact, if we scrapped all of it and we had something more like a universal income, and also lower poverty, and also better fiscus. Yeah, it would probably be healthier. Yeah, for for, for people. Anyway,
1: so on reflection, it's not as crazy. It certainly wouldn't cost as much as what Elizabeth Warren wants to do in America. <laughs> Nothing will cost or, as much as what he wants to do. <laughs> and and it's it's nice to have him being backed a little bit by yeah. And this he's also really airy fairy
0: celebrity oriented. You know what I like about both of them is that both of them feel like real human beings, mm-hmm. right? Andrew Yang is a, you know, he's got a little bit of ego. He's got a, but he's a, he seems to be a sort of pleasant, fairly normal guy. He's like, he's like a very friendly, glad handing type of guy. You mm. probably met someone like that in your life. Uh, Marianne Williamson is like a very weird aunt that you have who's into new age spirituality or something. Yeah, no, like crystals that, that yeah, yeah. cleanse the vibes. Exactly. And um, whereas a lot of the other figures in this race, I mean, I've never met anyone quite like Donald Trump. He's a he's a strange chap. Yeah. Um I've never met anyone, or I've have, I have met people like Elizabeth Warren and um uh you know, Joe Biden and I'm not fond of that type of person. They're not the kind of person I would hang out with in real life. Mm. Um at least in their public personas they are very mechanical. They're very ambitious. They're very, very ruthless, calculating, very calculating. Um and they've played a character for so long mm. that they've disappeared into the character. Donald Trump's done this too. He played Donald Trump on TV for so long that eventually he became the character of himself, the caricature, the caricature, sorry, of himself. Um, so that's what's quite kind of nice. It's nice to see two people who sort of are nice. There's a human quality to them that mm. a lot of the others lack, mm. and it's nice to see them buddying up. Um, well, so
1: reminds me. She she reminds me a little bit of Cornel West, who, um, is the kind of political theorist who likes Christianity and religion more generally, mm. who often gets invited onto CNN mm-hmm. and during the impeachment proceedings this week, uh, they had him on a few times. Uh, in particular, they had him on when, uh, one of Trump's allies or, or I don't know what you want to call her. Kellyanne Conway.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. What is she? She's a spokesperson for the white house. Something like
1: something that. Like that.
0: Ran ran his campaign in 2016.
1: Yeah, she said on Martin Luther King Jr. Remembrance Day that Trump, that King Jr. would have loved Donald Trump and hated impeachment or whatever it is. And it seemed like she wasn't saying much substantive. Anyway, so they called up Cornel West, uh, who's a very snappy dresser, and I happen to remember from Princeton.
0: (laughs) Oh, you went to Princeton, did you? (laughs)
1: Uh, Because he was there. He subsequently moved, Uh, as did I. Moved right along. Uh, Anyway, he came on and he said something that I think was important. He said, Martin Luther King Jr. was really into radical love. He was a radical about love. And he believed in this message that I think uh, Solzhenitsyn also believed in sort of under huge amounts of oppression, still saying, you know, there are are people on the other side of the power dynamic right now who are not totally evil. No one is totally evil. Mm. There's goodness in everyone and it's worth appealing to that goodness at the Mm. same time as sort of going after... The nastiness or the mm. evilness or whatever you want to call it, mm. and that would have been an important message that Martin Luther King Jr. would want to spread today. Mm. Uh, and anyway, I, in a way, I think he's in—he taps into a similar vein as Marianne Williamson.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. That is effectively your message. Um, we wanted to, uh, which I think
1: segues into a point that I wanted to make about impeachment proceedings. Yes, we don't really want to talk to about
0: the details of them. We will do that on another show, but uh, not 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 this week.
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, A lot of people are sort of keeping their heads under the covers or getting super obsessed about it and there's more to be disclosed and so we're going to see how it goes. Maybe something fun will happen. But I want to talk about a philosophical idea that we've discussed on the show before Mm. and that I think is useful to bear in mind at this time and it's the idea of esteem teams. So the thought comes from Christian List and Philip Pettit uh, Philip Pettit's political theorist at Princeton
0: um, and it's basically you know I'm beginning to wonder whether you're in the pocket of big Princeton because you're <laughs> always big in Princeton here
1: well I'm just I'm sort of I suppose laying it out there so that if anyone listening wants to look up further it's it's easy for them <laughs> to find where to go <laughs> and also to say this is not me coming up with anything it's yeah, I'm just yeah. sort of kind of uh, c- communicating what I think is useful information so they, 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 to go back over the basics, they noticed that if you look over the history of, of sort of abstract, r- people writing abstractly about society, uh, going back to Marcus Aurelius, Plato, Aristotle, uh, through the medieval era, Thomas Aquinas. Um, All the Goodens. Erasmus, then uh, sort of Descartes, Hume, Kant, Hobbes, uh, this is a real list and it goes on mm. into the 19th century hegel you find a common theme montesquieu of of people identifying three social goods three basic goods that you can try and get in a in a in a human way and they are property power power and prestige or esteem the positive regard of although the it.
0: word the ancients usually use is honor
1: yeah which, which. Uh, although, if you look at the Greeks, they have about five different words for honor. So, one of the things, maybe the word that most closely matches what we're looking at here is kudos, which is uh, n- not the same as time, I
0: think would be my my ancient Greek is not up to standard. <laughs> okay,
1: we, we won't <laughs> we won't go there then. But in each one of these domains, there is a simple although somewhat surprising fact, which is that we seem to do better at pursuing these things if we work together. Mm. So the simplest way to go after property, of getting more property is to collaborate. Yeah, to trade or to steal. Or to steal. But to work together in a company turns Mm. out to be a really, really good way to do it. Or a gang. Yeah. And when the company becomes a limited liability corporation, which is a a financial innovation that comes out of the Netherlands, particularly Amsterdam, in the 17th century or so. Uh, So that you say that this is a persona ficta, they call it, or, you know, today we say uh, this corporation is a person in the sense that it has some rights and it has its own bank account. And the great innovation there is that if it goes bankrupt, you also don't have to go bankrupt if you're an investor. You only lose the money that you initially invested. Once we did that, that allowed trade to boom. Uh, and risk management to get much better. So companies or corporations are sort of how we get our act together in the property domain in the most sophisticated way. As you say, we can also do gangs and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: you can do more primitive ways of doing it.
1: And in, in power, there's the political party, hmm. there's the state, um, armies. the province, the armies. They're all very collaborative things. Yes. And uh, Pettit's idea is that when the most sophisticated form of it is a group agent, which has a particular kind of voting pattern and mm. deliberation discursive uh, mechanisms that we won't have to get into now um but the third because i think everyone has like quite a lived experience of that to use a very wokey phrase and then the third one is 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 what they reckon to have been hugely understudied in the 20th century and what happens in the 20th century is there's some decolonization there's also anthropology and sociology become official uh, institutionalized forms of study and so there's a lot mm. of uh, basically, white people, Christians, kind of going out into uh, the rest of the world and asking questions like, "Where we? What do you guys have? Where we have this?" So, in in, yeah. in religious studies, there's this problem. It's like we have Jesus and we have the Holy Trinity. What do you have? Yeah. And so people come up with silly ideas about how other religions work because they're tacitly working off their own.
0: This isn't uh, this isn't related entirely to the 20th century, though. So, for example, the ancient Greeks were very um, keen on relating uh you know whenever they wrote about a foreign culture they always said oh their main the main god they worship is mercury instead of zeus like we yes do. so they There's just fit their, their zeus is and, our mercury yeah, they just yeah. sort of squashed them together even when there wasn't a clear fit
1: right so so but the point about the 20th the turn of the 19th century and entering the 20th century is that this becomes institutionalized mm. um in a lot of europe and america it's
0: uh, a quote-unquote science
1: yeah, and so in anthropology and sociology, what I think they often end up doing is saying, well, we have money and the police and judges and presidents and all that, what, and kings and queens. What do you guys have? And they often find the answer is, well, you guys have an honor code or an honor system mm. or an esteem system where you end up doing things for other people just because that's the sort of role that you play in the society. And for th- and that's one of the reasons that um, you find a kind of relativism where people stop thinking of... There being esteem distributions in Europe and in America. They think, no, what we've really got is power and property. Mm. And
0: esteem is what those third world people have. Yeah, we've gotten rid of this sort of outdated concept like yeah, honor. W- like honor is just silly. It's a primitive superstition. You know, they have blood feuds so that when you kill someone in their family, they have to kill you or something. Yes. So, so there's this fetishization like that, yeah. that
1: exotifies it and and makes it hard to see that just as with property and power, there's there's a, it's a universal human good and it's hmm. universal that people pursue it. Some, of course, pursue, you know, there's a balance that everyone strikes between those three things and how much you pursue one versus the other or how much you find yourself kind of... Uh, Uh, turning away from all three in a kind of stoic way. So all that happens really is the esteem good gets tucked away inside other things. Exactly. Mm. And then the only way that it ever gets taught is sort of marketing brand management
0: and a little bit of soft power in international theory. Or kind of, you know, how you you sort of, what the fashionable thing to do is, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So people do understand it sort of intuitively, but they don't always have the right words for it. And so
1: here's one insight that I think is... Quite profound from the universal study of it, which Pettit and List try to resurrect, and that is uh, an answer to the question of how do we overcome the problem of free riding. So, in property uh, corporations and in power um, group agents, recently, yeah. it's a major. It's a it's a sort of theoretical problem that you see playing out in practice. If you're in a company and everyone's doing their job, and you're the one person who doesn't do his job it's quite likely that everyone else is going to fill in for you. You're still going to make a profit. You're still going to get your salary. It's going to work out.
0: Everyone's had an experience like that before.
1: Yeah. And in the state, you could say if you if everyone else paid their taxes and you didn't pay your tax and everyone else was like a conscientious citizen and made sure that the government in charge was the right kind of government and you just left politics for other people to think about, you could still get off pretty well. So you're a free rider. And so it's the problem of the free rider is sort of baked into the way that the basic um, mechanism of pursuing property and the basic mechanism of pursuing power works when you incorporate a a bunch of individuals into a group. It's different with esteem teams, which is what I call the way we get together uh, when we're trying to get our act together in terms of pursuing esteem. Mm. And uh, sports are a very uh, real way in which we pursue esteem together. You're a fan of a sports team, if it's a national team or a club or whatever. If they win you kind of feel better about yourself, even if you haven't done anything directly to help them win. And if they lose you feel bad about yourself and you diss people from the other team. You're like, ah, oh, you're a bunch of losers or you're a bunch of cheats or whatever. Yeah. So we get together and here's the thing about the free rider. The people who whose esteem matters the most are the people in the same team as you and they're the ones right around you. The fan base are the people that you're the most closely connected with. So when you're sitting in a stadium and the Springboks score a try, everyone gets up together and they cheer. And it's as if they're cheering the team. But it's impossible not to notice the people right around you, whether they're cheering or not. And if some guy is yawning and staying on his seat and still just hanging out while the rest of you are getting up to to cheer the try, then he's going to stand out as not a real member of the team. Yeah, he's, he's not seems, a real he's fan. He's, he's kind he's of a,
0: bringing everything down. He's, he's he's actually a bit of an enemy, and almost
1: exactly. And he's even worse than at least if the guy is supporting the New Zealand team and is wearing he's a New Zealand jersey, participating in the whole thing, yeah. then it kind of makes sense. And you and he jumps up when his team scores, and you jump up when you, when your team and you scores. You feed off the energy of each other. Yeah. yeah, but if he's sort of wearing a Springbok jersey and the Springboks sc- score a try, and he's just like, uh, whatever, then then he's it's then these very alienating. Yes. And one of the things about uh so you you overcome the free rider problem cuz the the gods guiding the guardians are everyone who's the most closely connected to everyone else, and yep. the incentives the are exactly way to lined get up. get
0: esteem is to because it's on a very individual basis really is to kind of participate is to
1: also be a cheerleader. Mm. So the best way to get esteem if you're if you're in the fan base of the esteem team is to be a cheerleader, and everyone sort of tries to outcompete each other as cheerleaders to mm. be the to to be the one who jumps up the, with the most enthusiasm, and that's how you end up having these Mexican waves and these huge roars of a crowd. I mean that's how human beings we sort of behave. It's as if uh, we're super coordinated. Mm. And Pettit and List use this metaphor of the intangible hand. So they say the market, when you get the corporations going properly, it's as if an invisible hand is distributing resources really effectively. When you have uh, the iron fist of the state, it's quite obvious how it's distributing power.
0: even just the threat of it has a power to correct and change behavior beyond. It, yeah.
1: Exactly. And with the intangible hand, it's like we can coordinate quite spectacular oohs and ahs and yays and boos. Um, very easily, and, and it's
0: and emotional feelings as well, right? Yeah, a crowd does f- share an emotional,
1: very meaning. deep psychological stuff, and and there are studies coming out of Princeton uh, that show how people's brain waves all line up. Hmm. They really, we really sync up together when we go through. No, these exactly. Uh,
0: I I was in a in a, in a riot once. Um, I wasn't rioting, but I was getting rioted. Good to know. I was getting rioted at. <laughs>
1: you were getting ri- <laughs> rioting
0: was happening in your general direction, <laughs> by caucasian people. And I've never felt more alive in my whole life. Mm. I've just, you know, I was I was way more combative and aggressive than I normally am. Mm. Um, I felt so much adrenaline. And I felt so alive. And so did everyone else around me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and and Dickens writes really well in Tale of Two Cities about the mob. Yes. The one mind. It's a very real thing. One savage mind that descends across and divides across many men. So... So with 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 companies and with state stuff, you have this free rider problem, and with with esteemed teams, you've got this radicalizing problem, mm. where because you don't have free riders, everyone sort of encourages everyone else to go a bit to an extreme. And I really must say that the the, the response to the referee is super telling, and I. Spent quite a lot of my youth at St. where we were both at school, sort of trying to be the guy where if the ref blew a yellow card against one of our players, I'd be like, oh, maybe that's fair. And then after a while, I just gave up. I was overwhelmed by the psychic thing. (laughs) And I realized that that's fine. It's kind of fine when the ref blows for your first response to be, no, boo. And then afterwards, you're like, you know what? It was a fair yellow card that yeah. guy punched that other guy in the face. You should, <laughs> should have actually been a red. <laughs> <laughs> should have been a red. That's fair. But it's so, so it's like it's normal and it's okay in some instances to get carried, to get swept up by the, by this esteem architecture into a radical way of thinking. What's a big problem is that that seems to have overwhelmed a lot of people. And I, when it comes to politics, and I think Trump more than He's a figure anyone in my this, lifetime. Yeah. Forces sort of, well, so many people have used him as the esteemed team sort of persona sine qua non. He is the ultimate uh, team to either, you're either for him or you're against him. Yeah, And you get likes based on how much more loudly you boo him than the next guy. And you get noticed by the person right next to you. Okay, I'm booing, but he's booing even more loudly. And if someone yawns, is like I'm not sure this is really a big
0: deal. I'm not sure that yellow card is for real. Whatever. Then you're you're a threat to society because you know you're not taking. You're either not defending the greatest president has ever lived, or you're not taking uh, cognizance of the fact that America's facing the greatest threat it's ever faced. Hashtag resistance. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's either
1: hashtag Trump is the best or hashtag resistance. Trump th- trained. Trump. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is this is the end of the world, and we've got Hitler on our doorstep. Exactly. So. I th- I feel very strongly that that in this regard I'm not a fan of Trump. I'm not a fan of the resistance. I am a fan of the truth. <laughs> and we were talking about big this of, before. <laughs> I'm, I don't know that that means I'm on Team Truth, mm. right? I don't know that I'm one of the stars, like on the on the rugby field, on the soccer field, getting to know the hardcore facts. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Uh, well-informed compared to a lot of experts that are out there. Yeah. But I'm at least, when I look at people on TV and I read things in the newspapers, the thing that I'm a fan of is seeing
0: signals of the attempt to... To clear sort of through the mess and the muck and actually talk about what's really happening and whether this affects... Yeah. I don't
1: get excited. If I see someone getting carried away with themselves and trying to out-boo the next person Mm. or trying to out-cheer the next person, either pro or anti-Trump, that turns me off. What turns me on is when I see someone trying really hard to be objective. And objectivism in journalism and in political analysis is kind of a boogie-boo word. We all know that we come with our prejudices and our biases. And it can never really be achieved, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. You can be a fan of it. Yes. And so I think that's that's what – and I think – it's, I think it's good to put that out there and to be mm. explicit about it. That is, how, that is the attempt that I'm making in watching this stuff. And I watched three hours of uh, Adam Schiff and The Next Guy uh, two nights ago. And I, I didn't really watch anything yesterday, but I'm sure I'll catch up on it and be reading about it. What I'm looking for is people that are doing the damnedest they can to figure out what really happened, what the proper way to analyze it is. Mm. And
0: what the w- correct response is,
1: and when I see people uh, trying to out cheer or out boo each other, I switch to the next channel.
0: And it's interesting. I think that what shows exactly that you're right is the kind of almost sport like or mass for uh, for not, uh, aspect of this, right? So we've seen really big marches against Trump. You know, like the women's march in uh, in Washington. DC, yeah, where people
1: w- were saying you should assassinate the president.
0: Yeah, and, and it was extreme, you know, the, you know. People are, I mean, the, the, the devotion, the way that people put into it, the emotion yeah. that people shoot. So yeah. Likewise, a Trump rally. It's a charged, powerful
1: event. It's 100,000 people who tailgate for like a day and a half outside and then go into a stadium and watch a sports match it's where a, he... Yeah where he's like a pugilist. He's boxing against...
0: He's boxing against all his enemies with his words. And they cheer and they he's boo kind of and jokes. they... He's jokes. He's, you know, he's, he's interacting with the crowd in a very real way. Yeah. Um, and so we really see the kind of uh, esteeminess mm. leaking out there. Mm. Um, the internet is filled with videos of people going mad. And it's hugely important. I mean, one of
1: Pettit and insights is that esteem has this unique distinction of the three basic goods that the very nature of its pursuit energizes people in a way that un, that mitigates the uh the free rider problem mm, mm. Uh, I mean, and so it's not to say that none of that that stuff isn't important and it's you know it's like obama too man he really energized people it became such a fan base thing and the more you know the bigger the obama t-shirt was that you were wearing the more kids were See you on college campus. It had that
0: added dimension of um, there were at least some people who thought that if I support him really hard, it'll prove to everyone that I am definitely not racist.
1: Yeah, which is an, which is just another esteem team. Yeah. I mean, what is a race? My thesis is that a race is an esteem team. Mm. That that's and you look I, at people. I look forward
0: to the to the whole thesis. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'll break that down on another day. Uh, but but so anyway, so I think we've laid down the way that we'll be looking at this and tune in. Uh, next week or the week after, and we'll and we'll get into some of the details. Yeah, but I think that that right now there are enough people booing and cheering on either side that being a freeloader when it comes to that is fine. Yes, the incentives are plenty for journalists and politicians to be doing their damnedest to figure out uh, the useful facts. And w- what it's up to us to do is be dispassionate and try and uh, sift the wheat from the chaff, or the or the stonies from the awful spy letters.
0: Okay. Okay. Firstly, Spallada is great, <laughs> and I won't have you besmirch its good name like that. Ah, needless. <laughs> um, so I had a a sort of a brain a brain thought last night that was not fully formed, but a brain can, wave, a brain wave
1: in your big brain, in
0: my my big brain, um, that we can try and sort of maybe flesh out a bit here. Which is that uh, my contention is that the worst fifty years for. Um, the sort of battle of ideas for the for the fight for liberty in the world was between 1880 and 1930, and in uh, you know there are a couple of innovations we get during this period which are profoundly damaging. Um, we get the real proper establishment of like hardcore segregation of um, uh, scientific biological racism in, in in universities. I mean a lot of these things appear before, but they really come to the sort of the forefront of what's popular in intellectual circles during this period. Yeah, uh, We get real attempts to do sort of revolutionary communism. I can't remember exactly when the Paris Commune is, um, but it's kind of sort of close to this period. And of course, in 1917, we get the Soviet Union uh, or the Russian Revolution. And of course, we also get fascism in this period. We get a lot of the thinking that produces the sort of desire to plan and organize societies we get eugenics which believes in sort of sterilizing in in uh, unfit human beings and genetically sort of molding the species uh we get the sort of scramble for africa imperialism Mm -hmm. and the sort of very Mm -hmm. heavy-handed anti-assimilationist views of the imperial powers really get entrenched there in south africa this is really where we begin to see proper segregation whereas beforehand it's a lot more complicated um, it's a lot more wishy-washy, mm. you know, who who fits into which society?
1: Yeah, I like to remind people: Sanabosh, named after a coloured woman, Lady yeah. Stella, yeah. Simonstown, Simon
0: is also. When when you look at a sort of South African history, there's an awful lot that hasn't been written that much about, and this is something that really should be written more about, which is the sort of the Griquas and the mixed race people, um, who move ahead of the sort of formal colonial borders, yeah, and they seriously impact how South Africa. Works, you yeah. know, they, they they have horses and guns, um, and they conflict with the sort of uh, the, the Bantu tribes there, and it's it's very interesting and it needs more written on it. Yeah, um, and they found towns like Cockstad, mm. named after Adam Cock, which is an unfortunate name. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just means chef. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's not an unfortunate. <laughs> <name>. <laughs> um, but those those kind of sort of aspects of south african society get eroded and yeah. then we get we get uh, yeah. uh, very powerful labor groups pushing for um keeping black workers out of the higher levels of the workforce yeah the
1: first communist rally in south africa is workers of the world unite for a white south africa yeah that's their rally cry you get the native land act 1913
0: uh, 1922 the the uh, the white miners revolt literally with weapons against the state um in johannesburg and there's a battle over it and a lot of that is because they want sort of the colour bar and things like that entrenched and reinforced and more uh, basically black people kept out of the high levels of the workforce Um, we're still dealing with the consequences of that also other things that happen is there's the dissolution of these empires that sort of uh, you know they they have their problems um, but they do solve a lot of geopolitical problems like the Austro-Hungarian Empire Mm. holds together that Bit of Europe, the Ottoman Empire holds together sort of the Middle East, mm. um, the Russian Empire holds together a lot of Eastern Europe and, and and sort of Central Asia. All these things kind of fall apart temporarily or permanently, mm. and we still live with the consequences. I mean, uh, the fact that the Kurds don't have a state is as a result of this period. You know, yeah,
1: that. the fact that in Bosnia, every post office has three entrances yeah. and three different things depending on if you're a Serb or a Croat or a and a kind of Bosnian wh- is like. It it's still that apartheid is still going on today and
0: these, these 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 empires these things they they you know obviously the Kurds didn't have a state in the Ottoman Empire but they sort of squashed some of these things down a bit hmm. and you get a lot of very aggressive nationalism and a lot of authoritarianism that comes hmm. out of the fall of the, the first world war all the collapse of these empires you get a lot of really bad ideas um I wonder when the next fifty years of terrible ideas are, and I have a horrible feeling that there are at least some signs that, that we've started. That we've started. So, uh, I think it is my it's my belief that by the sort of eighties or nineties, um, real kind of racism had died across the Western world in a lot of ways. So, I mean, what do you mean by real racism? I mean, I mean, sort of, uh, you know, segregationists those people are inferior to us Mm -hmm. um, that kind of very aggressive when we think of a racism
1: backed up by guns yeah when we think of kind of uh, so it's not that discrimination goes away yeah but it's the ability for people to marshal the forces of states to impose a regime that both separates and subjugates
0: exactly but even even in a place like America which has a sort of history of of segregation or more soft discrimination Mm. in various instances uh, I think that there was a there was a low ebb of that even. Um, and unfortunately, it's come back. Now, you know, once once upon a time in, in this period, 1880, to 1930, we got things like, uh, you know, laws that said that you couldn't mix races. Yeah. We're now seeing articles and think pieces about how... We should bring know, that back and don't trust white people. Yeah, don't trust white people. Flag their allegiance and... There's a different flavor to all of this, of course. Yeah. Um, it's sort of turned a little bit on its head, but it's... Just as toxic, again, it's the same ideas. Uh, we've got the return of sort of revolutionaries yeah. in Western politics, um, to some degree. Trump promoted himself as a revolutionary. I don't yeah. think he's been one, but no. you know, he talked I'm he talked about being one. Um, and of course, we've got people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who explicitly uh, re- advertise themselves as revolutionaries and and uh, that kind of thing. And there is, I think, a there's a, there's a sort of weird psychic feeling of, of hopelessness and fear. There's, I think, very little optimism. Now you also see it in a lot of the talk about climate change and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, um, which may lead us back into some of the mistakes that were made 100 years ago. Yeah, it's an interesting thesis. So shall we start? Shall we? Let's go
1: back to that period, that initial period. Yeah. Uh, I think that there are a couple of things that, that distinguish this 50 years that you're picking out um, in a really macro way uh, that, that aren't given enough thought. One of them is the battle between Christendom and Dar al-Islam. So people don't think in these terms today, although they did, I think, uh, after 9-11. Briefly. Uh, briefly that kind of thought that there's this clash between these two basic civilizations is not as fashionable as it once was Twenty years, 10 years ago. Um, it's not a great way to think about current geopolitics. If you look no. at the Middle East, you know, Saudi Arabia is much closer to Israel and uh, America than it is to Iran. But it is a useful wait i think to think about the history of the world from about 700 uh after ce or ad depending on how you want to put it (laughs) uh all the way through to 1880 uh, or 1914 really Hmm. and that's because that's how people thought of themselves Hmm. the crusades a lot of crusaders were there to rape and pillage and have uh, a reckless good time uh but a lot of them really did think that spreading Christendom was super important. A lot of the spread of Darul Islam so was so just opportunistic I, and political, but
0: a lot of it really was seriously about spreading. We must talk about the Crusades one time sometime because it is a favorite topic of mine. And yeah. Uh, it's it's a little bit, it's it's complicated, like all these things always are. But yeah. Uh, it, I'm yeah. glossing over to give it yeah. to
1: give a general sense and to remind people that Europe was in a certain, uh, Europe is a term of art that's Fairly recent in a way. I mean, sort of Christendom is an idea that unifies certain states. It's probably a more
0: accurate term in a lot of ways than Europe.
1: Yeah, um, but if you're going to look at Europe's contemporary borders, they were so to speak colonized for a, more than a thousand years. Uh, the the Dar al Islam stretched all the way to Vienna on in the east, and uh, all the way to the mountains, sort of between France and Spain in the West, and there was huge presence. But not, not, not al- all at the same time, though. No, no, no.
0: Yeah. At, at various stages, there was a big Islamic presence in Spain, and another time there was in the Balkans. But yeah. uh, these things didn't always match together. Its height was probably in the mid-1600s and sort of 1670, somewhere around there. And then it starts retreating,
1: and uh, Europe gains the kind of ascendancy that... Is a prerequisite of the project of world domination that it then goes through, and partic- mm. you know, you rarely see this with the scramble for Africa. In 1880, uh, nothing but practically the coasts. I mean, it's like two percent or three percent of Africa's land mass is is, is claimed by Europe. You know. Is really claimed by Europe, and by 1890, it's already quite over. Practically 100%, uh, because everything is, at least in theory, being carved apart. And by 1900, it it really is like Africa has been carved up.
0: With the exception of Ethiopia.
1: Yeah. And Liberia. Yeah. Which America is... Which is a sort
0: of American colony, so really only Ethiopia.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you can only do that once Dar al-Islam, militarily speaking, has been uh, overwhelmed and then in World War one, the, the sick man of Europe they'd call the Ottoman Empire is probably overwhelmed too. So what's interesting about that is that it's almost as if uh, having one superpower, and it's not one superpower in the sense that the United Kingdom alone, could dominate or France alone could dominate but sort of a, a, a network of countries that are at once antagonistic to each other and kind of on board with certain things that they agree on where they kind of disagree with everyone else or are kind of aligned in a way that alienates them from everyone else. Yeah. Um, a, that seems to be the prerequisite for these really bad ideas to to spread like wildfire as they mm. do. Because they're so all the hooked analog- together
0: in a very tight intellectual thing.
1: Exactly and the analogy to t- today is that in 1988, you have the Soviet bloc and you have the West, which Mm. sort of replaces Christendom, replaces Europe as this idea because, of course, the divide goes through Europe, but you've got the West, the NATO alliance. And the
0: West also awkwardly includes countries like South Korea and Japan and Australia.
1: (laughs) But so you've got those two things, uh, and they're kind of against each other. I mean, they really are opposed to each other ideologically. In terms of geopolitics, they really are at loggerheads. And... And in a way that keeps each side, well, here's what seems to have happened after that, is that the battles that were happening across those lines have been internalized mm. and are now happening within America. Yes. So America now seems to be at a Cold War with
0: itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, more hyperbolic commentators in the US talk about a cold civil war.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, and and I think that if if this fifty years, if it does turn out that like starting with the nineteen ninety two riots in Los Angeles, yep. or starting with Trump's election, or starting with uh, uh, uh,
0: d- uh, what's his, time, uh, birtherism uh, against Obama, Coates, what's his name, the Coates, starting Kotes, with his
1: yeah. uh, the case for reparations where mm-hmm. people should be taxed depending on the color of their skin, if if that is You know, if historians in a century are going to look back at this 50 years, somewhat like we're looking at the period 1880 to 1930, uh, as as a period in which really bad ideas spread, really ramified deeply into society, I think that's going to be part of the story. I think the line that there's a cold civil war within America is not going to sound so silly. So, so that's one development is European preeminence. Another development is the spread of hot type newspapers.
0: Yes, so this is this is a thing that we both like to in our spare time, Winjbar, because that's the kind of people we are. Um, but the disruptive te- uh, effects of technology. And um, so, before you talk about hot type thing, let's the the, the sort of basic version of the thesis that most people talk about, that I'm a very strong proponent of, is that. Uh, new types of information sharing technology are profoundly disruptive for human civilization um, and often in a negative way until the society adjusts to be able to manage that that new technology. So the quintessential example is when the movable type printing press is invented by Gutenberg, um, within a generation you get firstly the Reformation, which splits apart European Christendom and it's really devastating. It leads to a lot of violence, conflict and chaos um in the long term that might have been you know there may have been some good that came out of it but in the short term it was very unpleasant to live through Mm. and at the same time it also you know what's one of the most popular first books that comes out that's not about religion it's oh we should burn witches and here's how you detect a witch and witch burning actually hits its peak at that period not in the earlier middle ages which is what we associate more with witch burning yeah um and so you know we can see it again today with social media Right? yeah things like twitter and stuff they seem to make our body politic worse <laughs> so and 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 in this period sort of around the 1880s
1: firstly you get the ability for people to move around the the, the metal bits that carry the letters uh so quickly that it's that's hot the metal yeah. literally gets hot right you talk about hot metal so that radically decreases the cost because unlike in Gutenberg's era where you have to have someone physically manually setting all of the things up, mm. you kind of are literally pressing buttons and that's rearranging the metal and then that's setting the printing thing so going. newspapers and the, get very big. Newspapers get much cheaper to produce. Mm. And the other thing that gets much cheaper to produce is paper. Mm. Uh, and that's because of pulping technology of wood. Yeah. So the history of paper is like super interesting, papyrus, uh,
0: and, parchment and vellum
1: and, and cloth like that, yeah. exactly but and and people start you know paper paper is big by the by the 1800s mm. but it's still expensive and one of the reasons that some Americans will still be familiar with the term yellow journalism is because the cheapest paper to produce turned out to be really yellow and so you'd have these cheap to produce newspapers in the sense of um how much money it costs to produce the the, the ink to print the ink and to make the paper. And they also did some uh, really, let's say they weren't paying their journalists too much to think very clearly. No, not very. And one of the stories is, you know, the first great success of yellow journalism in America is that they banged the war drum uh, to take the dying kingdom of Spain out of Cuba. Yeah. And this is a war in which Teddy Roosevelt goes and fights in the the Rough Riders, First American Cavalry Unit.
0: And it's a really quick war. It's a really cheap war. They dismantle a lot of what remains of the Spanish Empire, including the Philippines and Cuba. And And it turns out to be really easy, but the war
1: drum was banged by the newspapers. Mm. The politicians pick up that this is a really popular thing to do. They go and do it, and then they become more popular. And it has this perhaps salubrious effect of somehow uniting Americans around the esteemed team of the United States of America, because the war happened sort of really at the turn of the century, 1800s to 1900s, and in 1876, you've got civil war concluding, or sort of yeah. at its height, and that divided America, and, and, and this war with Spain kind of united America. Uh, that seems like a really almost benign example of newspapers banging the war drum and then it working out. So, but you have newspapers banging the war drum for all of the things that you mentioned, for eugenics, for the thought that belonging to a race makes you—you know—that that's the team to celebrate. That makes you an insider. For World War One, very much for World War One, and very much for uh, communist revolution. Yes, uh, all of all of these insidious ideas are they. As you say, they were quite old ideas in a way. Mm. But they get real new But they get to spread when you have the previous gatekeepers of information circumvented by Mm. new cheap means of communicating things. Well, well, of
0: course, what happened when the the first printing press was invented was it took a little while for the ideas to really get for people to understand the technology. Yeah. Which takes a while. And I think that we've started to see that with the internet a bit, in that uh, when the internet first came out, we really didn't quite understand it. Then sort of the conservative blogosphere in the US starts to kind of work out how to use it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the left kind of tries to use it.
1: Well, before that, I've I've got to say, I was looking at the Financial Times from last week and it said, it's literally the first sentence on his cover story was, Donald Trump figured out the dark arts Of the internet and Mm -hmm. how to manage and how to use the dark the dark arts of how to use the internet for political purposes. I was in America in 2008 and in 2012, and in both occasions, CNN and the New York Times and a lot of publications that I had a lot of respect for couldn't get enough of the fact that Obama was bringing politics to the youth because he'd figured out how to use the internet Uh, to do it. They were
0: doing micro targeting,
1: and there was Mm -hmm. it was all exactly the same things: how to figure out based on your likes and stuff on Facebook exactly what issue to send an advert to you on mm. or what to email you about and also a lot of like if you liked the Obama page then not only did you give all of your information to the page you also gave all of the information of your friends that was yeah. uh, that Facebook could that the network yeah. allowed you to get through to so and people were critical of that uh, at Princeton for example because there <laughs> were some professors who were I think able to take the ironic view that even if they wanted Obama to win, they that didn't this want is to win like that. Yes, mm. and so it's crazy to say that the that the that the that the anyway
0: that the, the right wing invented this all in 2016. Well, no, I wasn't referring to that. I was referring to um, sort of in the early 2000s when they do they kind of circumvent the uh, traditional media and publish stories and things. That yeah. Things like I can't remember what the the blogs were, but like uh, National Review has its corner. Um, There's, I think, the Drudge Report starts somewhere around there. There's a bunch of these these websites, and they they and Four Chan becomes yeah. Four Chan's founded in what 2003, something like that. And what's interesting also is um, Andrew Yang is a candidate of the internet. Now he's a much more sort of nice charming uh version of it but where does he he comes from nowhere no one knew who he was he had no experience in politics um but he comes up on the joe rogan podcast which has you know got enormous listenership yeah um and then he kind of uh, there's a lot of the sort of 4chan uh kids who liked uh donald trump just kind of for the fun of it because for the lols yeah for the lols um they kind of boost him in the early days in a similar way so a lot of 4chaners they talk about being a neat not an education, employment, or training, but they sort of aspire to it almost because it's like you know being completely free of having to do anything except watch pornography and play video games. Mm. Um, and uh, some of them say, "Oh, his universal basic income is going to allow me to finally be the neat I always wanted." It, it, they so they started calling his universal basic income "neat bucks," yeah, which is uh, you know a four chan term for 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 disability grant usually, yeah. But anyway, and so it becomes popular online because of that. And this pushes him sort of out of the no, that and also ran, mm-hmm. you know, insane billionaire who no one knows, insane CEO who no one knows, to being actually kind of in the limelight. Now, he's not going to win, but he got as far as he did with that kickstart. And he might
1: change... But he might change the direction of the Democratic Party going forward. Yeah,
0: we'll see. In four, if, if it years, reforms, yeah.
1: I think it'll be hard not to say that part of the reason is that sweeties like Marianne Williamson and cleveries like Andrew Yang have been putting into a direction that's quite other than
0: Ocasio-Cortez or Elizabeth Warren. Exactly. Um, so I think, I think what eventually does happen with these technologies is the society kind of institutionalizes them in a couple of institutions and controls them a lot more, and then they become less important. Um, so I think this happened a bit with newspapers, which is why you see this slow homogenization of the media space. Yeah, that then gets broken by the new technology. Basically. Yes,
1: yeah. yeah. Newspapers get broken by radio, and then TV, and now the social media. Yeah. The difference. One of the things about the social media that is extreme, and and we're totally on board that this is something that people figure out together, and it's 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 just as stupid to say now that social media is like a, a curse to society and we're never going to get over it, as it was to say in the 90s and the early 2000s, social media is a utopia and yeah. everything is lovely on the internet. Uh, no, like everything else, you know, it's a tool, it's as good as you use it, and we get better at using it together when exactly. the time as, as time goes by. But so I want to identify a couple of things. But we're not there yet. <laughs> we're definitely not there yet. So what happens when a new uh, sort of technology for uh, distributing information comes into play, is that one thing, so you've mentioned institutional stuff, but at the individual level, one thing is that it becomes, you have to set up new semantics, you have to have a new understanding, particularly of irony and of earnestness. Like that story you just told about neat bucks and people liking Andrew Yang Mm. because it sounds like he's saying it's going to be easier to be...
0: Yeah, they're completely perverting his platform, right? Because that's the last thing he wants people to do.
1: Yes. And at the same time, having spent a little bit of time on the dark web, I know that some of them know that and I know that some of them expect the other people that they hear, that they're speaking to, to know that. And that the joke is that... Very serious, earnest people are gonna think, oh no, this is the end of society if this guy wins no. and they're really saying they're really speaking ironically rather than earnestly.
0: It's, yeah, it's traditional trolling.
1: Yeah. So so it's exactly the same with yellow belly journalism in America in the eighteen nineties, is that they it that is where you have stories being written about much like in the Daily Sun in South Africa today about Tokoloshi's, the, the American big, version. Bigfoots, yeah. Bigfoots this is, I think being big seen Foot in Foot Saskatchewan.
0: Becomes yeah, a meme. in American folklore, yeah. <laughs>
1: And, they, and then you have serious journalists sort of or other publications that are still on more expensive white paper kind of saying, you know, this is terrible. This is the end of civilization. These guys really think that Bigfoot's around. And they're like...
0: Yeah, they can Dude. convince the people to
1: believe rubbish things. And you're like, no, man, no one really thinks it. They think it's just a fun thing to talk about. And this is an essential ingredient to the esteem uh, game
0: is that one of... So they're signalling that you're really after the truth. Just, just just to stop you there for a second. It's also worth noting that most of the bad ideas didn't come from the yellow papers.
1: No, <laughs> no, not at all. I, the, yeah, exactly. That's not what. I, the the only thing that they were really good at doing was was banging the war drum. Yeah, and uh, and 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 the ideas about race, nationalism, and uh, and about communism and fascism, they come later. And 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 yes. Printing the printing press is super important to that, but it's that's not coming out of America in the 1890s in this kind of way, with the Bigfoot stuff. In fact, they're much more earnest. They're much mm-hmm. less into jokes, uh, and when they do have anti-Semitic cartoons that sort of depict the Rothschilds as being having their tentacles in everywhere, it's they, earnest. Yes, it's super earnest, right? But so here's the thing about irony, is. It's ironic when you and I are watching the Rugby World Cup here together and the, and the ref gives someone a yellow card and we say boo and then afterwards we're like, well, it probably should have been a red. What we're doing there is just the same thing as with Bigfoot. We're saying the truth doesn't come first. There's a room in which the truth doesn't come first. The thing that comes first is loyalty and energy for your team. But we can leave that room and afterwards say, okay, you know, to be perfectly honest, in the, in the sober light of day, now that we're on our yeah, hangover, rather In the, in rather the heat than
0: of the moment, we said this, but we don't really believe
1: it. But that. we don't really believe it. That's an essential ingredient to, to, to esteem signaling, to esteem loyalty, uh, and belonging to an esteemed team. And it's not something we should ever want to completely undo. It's... It's the it's the spice of life, yeah. right? It to is to say silly things and kind of tell people stories about Bigfoot. You know, it, it's what theatre is. It's what playing with children
0: is. And we, and we all have this childlike quality to to act as if something's true that's not true. Yeah, exactly. If anyone's told a story at like a sort of hanging out with friends or something that, and you know, you've exaggerated ninety percent of the details. Yeah, but it's like it's sort of kind of maybe a bit true and. Yeah. It's just fun, and no yeah. one really be- takes it super serious. Yeah,
1: and I, I've got a friend who likes to say, you know, I'm not good. To, don't ask me to say this in court. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very good.
1: <laughs> because when you're in court, it's a different thing. Yeah, and 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 we kind of need to think about these different rooms. In in, in in our lives and the different rules that apply in these rooms so one of the things when there's a new technology it's harder to pick up on when something's ironic and when something's earnest when something is really is in the court of public opinion when this is deadly serious and when something is uh, is just zealous and yeah. kind of cheering we,
0: we, we don't actually know how seriously everyone is taking things I mean this is kind of the current fear on social media is oh the dumb masses will believe all the fake news that they read yeah um, whereas I think most of us can agree that the dumbasses might sometimes believe the fake news that they want to believe. Yeah. But often they're actually a lot more skeptical and a lot less dumb than you give them credit for. Exactly.
1: And it's just the loudest noise makers, it's the loudest booers and the loudest cheerers that are you really don't want to get their hands on the on the levers of power mm. because as you said about losing your character, losing yourself in a caricature that you perform, if you boo the other team and boo the ref when he blows against your team and you never have that sober moment the next day where you're like, "Ah," because you really want to be known as the biggest fan, then you can just become the biggest maniac. And when you do get the chance to make a decision that's going to really impact other lives, you're an incredibly unreliable person at doing that. So one of the big things to worry about is losing the sense of the difference between irony and earnestness. And, uh, another major difference between the social media that we have today and the radio and the TV is that ratio between sort of how many presenters there are and how close they are to the people that they're presenting to. So one of the things about when you're sitting in a stadium and we're cheering together is that there's tens of thousands of us cheering together. So there's lots of presenters. There's lots of noisemakers. And we're all right next to each other. So that's why you have this thing of we can all detect what the next person is doing. And the more you have that, the more likely I think it is for you to have the radicalization problem rather than the free rider problem with tv and the radio you've got very few presenters and they're quite distant from the people that they're presenting to so they can be quite powerful and if you get really good propaganda artists managing them they can do a lot of damage but they don't have the same kind of inbuilt tendency towards radicalization as the social media does which is much more like a stadium where you've got millions and millions and millions of presenters and they're right next to the people that they're presenting to and they really are pouring themselves into the into the fan club that they're around. People talk about este- uh, silos. They're not really in silos, but they are in fan clubs. They are in that corner of the stadium where they're t- surrounded a lot by Springbok jerseys and maybe a few New Zealand jerseys. And if they're, you know, one of the things one noticed on social media, like I noticed like 10 years ago and it hasn't gone away, is people calling other people out for being quiet when an important issue happens.
0: Yes, yes. Well, uh, I haven't there, was a, there was a joke on uh, right-wing Twitter about this, of, um, well, you know, when will Taylor Swift speak about... Uh, the high level of you know plastic use in schools or something, yeah, you know, and it just became a recurring joke that every time there was an issue, someone would say, "I can't believe how silent Taylor Swift is being on this issue,
1: yeah, and so one of the things that the right has done better than the left, I think has has been to maintain some sensitivity to the difference between irony and earnestness, like they're being they're joking there, mm. and everyone knows that they're joking there, uh the left, I think, not hasn't, generally speaking, in the Anglosphere, done as good a job at holding on to it. And that's a nightmare. You can't have one sort of uh, political ideology hold a monopoly on irony and the other one hold a monopoly on earnestness. You Then you're really lining things up for the next 50 years to be like the 1880s to the 1930s, where you had elites monopolizing ideas about... Um, planning for the future and and prudence. And you had uh, the Pauvres and those who speak on behalf of the Pauvres sort of monopolizing ideas about how important it is to care for your fellow man and not want people to starve in the short run. And that just sets up like a, a really nice fascist communists kind of clash of swords. So I don't know. I, don't, I, I mean, I don't think either of us feel confident that we are entering another such era if we were to do so let's just remember concerned about that the 1880s to the 1930s also uh the votes were spread to them to a hell of a lot of people a lot of monarchies came came down women got the right to vote starting in new zealand and then spreading across the anglosphere and further through the world uh economically
0: a lot of progress
1: some progress, not as much progress as... As before or after. Or before or after. There was, there really was some retardation. Um, Hyperinflation in much of Europe, Poland, Germany, Austria-Hungary, but the Russia cancels sort all of the 18,
0: all the, of the 1880s, before the First World War, there was quite a lot of good times.
1: Yeah, there was, there was, there was some serious innovation. And... Uh, now, I'm with you on all those and things And things. scientifically, I mean, one of the things, oh, yeah. like Einstein really, and Niels Bohr... And a, a lot of other a lot people of good science really there. come to grips, like probably the most exciting period of science since Newton yeah, is the 1880s it, it, this, to the 1930s. This problem I'm
0: talking about is mostly in uh, sort of the, the uh, uh, biology because of the racism stuff, but mostly in the humanities, Yeah, in the sociology, in the, uh, in the p- political studies.
1: Can I say one more thing about the biology and race? I know yes. we're drawing to a close here. Um, it's a point coming from guess who?
0: Kwame Anthony Appiah.
1: Kwame Anthony Appiah, and he says that, and he re, and he and he picks out this. You know,
0: this should really be his show.
1: <laughs> Kwame Anthony Appiah's living ghosts <laughs> hovers between our stony cans for a toast. <laughs> cheers,
0: cheers. So, too far away. We would <laughs> we would clink to, to, to clink cans.
1: <laughs> so um, he 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 just he just uh, uh, reminds one in his book. Uh, uh, the the lies that bind uh, which are about these it's on sig- sale
0: now on Amazon mm. uh,
1: including the what I think is an esteemed team of race is um, he says yeah eugenic the idea the idea that the, uh, the scientific institutionalization of the idea that race is a biological concept and yes. that it's the basic unit of of value and of meaning so that genetically what's competing are races Mm. uh, and so that politically what's competing must be races and economically and so on. And this is the key idea of fascism. Uh, He says, but it's not just that science. It's not just the hard science. It's also literature and the soft sciences. And the phrase that he notices coming up again and again is quote, the genius of a race, end quote. Ah. And this would have a few manifestations. One of the manifestations is as Pushkin is to the Slav, as Shakespeare is to the Anglo-Saxon, as Goethe is to the Germanic Teuton, as uh, who's the great Italian writer? Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, that, that you have these sort of national poets and, and they sometimes get appropriated into being race based poets. You know, they
0: capture the soul of the race or something. They, they,
1: they render the soul of the race visible and beautiful. So that's one sense of the genius of the race. And that becomes. It's so clearly like sport. And you look at a lot of the mm. um, literary criticism from the time, including from Matthew Arnold, who is in so many ways a great literary critic, perhaps the greatest of the 20th century in English, uh, of the 19th century in English. A lot of it does look like a sports fan talking about the Springboks against the All Blacks against the Wallabies and sort of saying, well, these guys are really good at this kind of thing. I mean, Matthew Arnold will say that the, the Semites, the Semitic race, is really good at. Um, accounting moral accounting financial accounting they they're really sober um, they they there's a kind of quantitative yeah analytic they're not frivolous inference of logic that's really useful whereas the Hellenic races the Greeks and the blondes or whatever are really exuberant they do lots of theatre spectacular painting mm. and ultimately he says which I think is almost a redeeming feature the best thing to do is mix and blend those racial qualities
0: running counter to the the, the views of most of the people at the time
1: yeah but a lot of people are like you know the Germans they make, they make the trains run on time and they're very good at this and the Slavs are like you know what's great about us is that we are so earthy and tough, and, and, and tough, yeah. and hardy, and the and the and the Franks are all about how how connected they are. They, uh, I think, in this period eighteen eighty to nineteen thirty, are still very much in the in the vein of we are the true inheritance of ancient Greco Roman civilization. Yes, uh, and they've got Neoclassicism. You know, they've got people painting uh, Homerian, Homeric scenes and Socrates's drinking the hemlock and stuff like that. So so this this idea that races the genius of the race is not is in one sense it's the sports star that we all cheer for and we're all cool because we cheer for him and in another sense is that that sports star exemplifies the essence of our race at its most distilled, at its most pure, and and its most fine. That to speak to an Englishman is to speak to a somewhat diluted version of Shakespeare, and he's just the ultimate one of us. Yes. To speak to a German is to speak to a diluted version of Goethe. And 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 literary criticism of that kind does persist through to today, and you'll find people saying, Chimena, uh, that's, that, a lot of the new Nigerian writers really distill what it is to be an African. And when you you run into a black version, you're sort of running into a diluted version of what they uh, are as storytellers. Um, And some people have made the mistake of saying things like that about Toni Morrison and African-Americans. And yeah, I mean, I think one of Appiah's points is that that's probably not... It's quite different to the science stuff. The science stuff is making... A, a, an even deeper mistake, and that it's and I think that is okay, I think that it's it's pretty chill to have literary criticism today a little bit be like, well, here we do African American literature, and here we do like Slavic literature, and here we do Teutonic literature and Gaelic literature and francophonic literature and so on. um and a little bit make it like teams that are competing with each other. There's world literature, there's uh, literature that really explicitly tries to be more like Manchester United. Or speak to the soul of or, the world or Chelsea well it's like dude we, we also have our team and we also have our style but the people who compose our team or comprise our team some of them come from Brazil some of them come from yeah. you know magical realism is uh, it's you've got great Borges in Argentina. You've also got Kutia's latest books. Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. also got uh Japanese Murakami doing it. And that is that, you know, some people shoot for magical realism as a team, as much as you might shoot for African-American oh, literature sure. as a team. So anyway, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's slightly different in kind, but it is also something that's really uh, took off then. And that I think is getting more prevalent today rather than less. And it's, it's a nice way to think about um, the institutionalizing institutionalization of esteemed, of the esteemed teams of race in particular so so at
0: some point during that discussion Beyond you appear science. to have eaten your beard yes I'm <laughs> trying to pull my beard out of my mouth
1: <laughs> it's actually not my beard it's like one of my hairs from the top of my head
0: that's, uh, that's disconcerting
1: yeah it's pretty I'm going to use this as floss but we're going to
0: end the show first <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so as the as the, the the creeping tide of racial thinking returns to the world after its low ebb in the in the nineties, um, I I believe I'm not actually sure whether legally we're allowed to tell people to buy gold because it might constitute financial advice and we're not accredited financial institution. Uh, but all I know is that I'm going to be buying gold.
1: Yeah, it's done pretty well since. Yeah, it's done pretty well <laughs> <laughs> in the in the since since Pax Americana got going. Since America
0: internalized the Cold War, it turns out gold (laughs) has become much more useful Um, than it might otherwise have been. Hopefully, by the time we do our next one, we won't have all been killed by the novel canora virus in China. And um, we'll catch you on the next episode of Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. Yeah.